<laughs> hey guys, it's Lavetta. Hi, it's Miriam. And welcome to Notorious Women Podcast, a comedy podcast. A comedy about podcast. Some of history, about some of history. Most, most notorious. Most notorious women. Women. Boom. Almost, you got me. You almost got me. <laughs> Dang it. Mm-hmm. I'll get you. Boom. Uh, <laughs> get started. Hi, listeners. Have you seen Jennifer Hudson's closet? No. Wait, what? No. Okay. What's, so the, what's going on? I have I have a new obsession. So, I... Okay. So, so I was watching, I was on, like, Instagram, minding my own business, you know. It, it's kind of good to, to mindlessly go through that and then get off after, like, oh, 10 yeah. minutes or whatever, or 5 <laughs> minutes. So, I was looking through it, and I guess she was getting ready. This was last week sometimes she was getting ready to do like a like a I think Beauty and the Beast her and John Legend were gonna sing it or something on you know how to okay. sing from their house oh yeah and, and they're like doing these like sing-alongs for families and things like that yeah and like I love Jennifer Hudson like she has one of the she I think she has the best voice out there like period like and I love Beyonce but Jennifer Hudson's voice is remarkable she Girl. she needs better songs. I've been saying that for a long time, but her she has the kind of voice that, like, like yeah, she has an amazing, amazing the power, the tone, just she, and she really knows how to sing. And so I love her, and then I just love like she was seeing like a regular girl, and like she's just like you know what I mean. Like I just love her. I just love her. I think her attitude's great. Yeah. Like, she's just so like she knows how lucky she is and like she's just like I just love her. I think she, and I think she's so beautiful. So she was getting ready for this this thing with John Legend. And she had on purple. I guess purple's her favorite color or whatever. So I thought maybe it's like a prince thing or whatever cuz prince's birthday just happened. But oh, yeah. So so I was surprised a that she had people there. I was like cuz I would let nobody in my house. But maybe they're all quarantined mm-hmm. together. Who knows. They're probably and, quarantined together. Behind her, I see what looks like, I don't know, a showroom at Saxon Avenue? I mean... Oh, my God. This closet was huge. And I'm talking about celebrities' closets. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I was just so distracted by... Like, what was behind her? And so then I went and I Googled Jennifer Hudson's closet, and sure enough, it popped up on um Oh, Ellen. wow. She was on Ellen once, and she showed, like, a, there aren't a lot of pictures, and I think the pictures are from the Ellen appearance. And she has, like, two full-size, like, purple, obviously, is her favorite color, like, purple couches. She has an – basically, wow. she looks like if she had a large master bedroom, like an extremely large master bedroom – but it was a closet. You know, I'm looking like, around my master bedroom, and I'm thinking, I bet you it's bigger than this room. And then you said what you just said, and I'm like, yep, bigger than this room. Like, it looks like, like a normal size. Thought, right, and then I thought, maybe it's not a big, so then I look at pictures because I'm a freak. And so, like, no. And I'm like, that is the way you live your life, okay? (laughs) And we know, depending on what part of the country you live in, like, she, maybe that's her Atlanta house, because she can get more uh, house for her money than she can in in L.A. 
because that's even big but, by LA rich people standards. Like this, this I mean, right? Easy. No, it's true. Even people in LA who are very rich and have all the money have space limitations. Right. It's the kind of closet that you think Oprah would have, like a billionaire would have. And listen, I'm not counting Jennifer uh, Hudson's money. Jennifer Hudson does very, very well, but Jennifer she Hudson does well and she money. earns it. Mm, right. Nobody has Oprah money. Oprah's like, wow, I got a lot of money, you know. I think it's the kind of closet that Oprah would be like, that's a big closet. Like, that's how big her closet is. Yes. Like, I'm just like, so now I'm obsessed with Jennifer Hudson's closet. So, listeners, if you have nothing to do and, I don't know, just go and look and Google Jennifer Hudson's closet. So that's, that's Or you've been teaching your children all day and you can't do anything with your brain. Look up her right. closet. That's like look a perfect thing to do. And I'm just like, I've been obsessed with closets anyway for like, like there's this lady, uh, I don't know if she's still doing the videos, but she definitely has a successful business. And she, uh, she does celebrity closets here and it's mostly here in LA. And she did Melissa Rivers closet. Oh my God. I love it. Oh. But this one even, Jennifer Hudson's closet, like, Jennifer, uh, um, Melissa Rivers is so interesting because she said she grew up with her knowing her mother's closet. And you know, Joan Rivers probably yeah. has a fabulous closet. And mm-hmm. it reminded her a little bit of her mother's closet, but it's her own closet. But what was so smart is that she was moving into a new house. So what they did was they actually combined the part of the bathroom with her closet so her team could be in there. So, like, oh. one part of the closet, yeah, one of the part of the closet had, like, sinks and a bunch of outlets. So she could get her hair done, hair washed, and then you go over a little bit more and there's, like, an island. And then the other side is, like, all the, like, the closets, like, the actual closets where the clothes are in it. But then on the side, you, what used to be what a person probably used the closet for, like a walk-in closet, is her shoe closet. It's really quite oh my clever God. what they did. Like, and That's, then there's a television I mean, in there. And, wow. And well, that, I've never so had, excited. like, a good closet. Girl. I've, you know, like, girl. I just, and and the closet that I do have, which is, you know, for, like, the normal person, totally fine. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of, like, shit in there. Like, that is where mm-hmm. we throw everything we're going to then give to Goodwill. That is where the boxes from, like, <laughs> for childhood. Like, all those papers I couldn't throw out, but I'm never going to look at again. They're in boxes. They're in that closet. Yeah. So I, I dream of, like, all a closet closet. All your stuff would fit in a, a neat little corner in Jennifer Hudson's house. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it, would, it would be unnoticeable. I'm just like, wow. But, I mean, it's the kind of, like I said, it's the kind of closet that, remember the closet in Sex in the City? We were all, like, in the movie Sex in the City. Uh, yes, I, I do. That's the movie, yeah. Jennifer, mm-hmm. Jennifer Hudson's closet would swallow that closet. Like, I was just wow. like. Wow. Because, like, I would, I would, yeah. I would live for that closet. Like, I want that, can I have just, just can that just closet? That closet? That? Oh, girl. That's like, so. Not too much. That's what I've been wasting my time on. No. I've just been trying to stay encouraged and um so and um but I guess we should get started. Oh, um We should but real quick, did you see that did you watch Kimmy Schmidt? I love Kimmy Schmidt. Yes, I watched the movie. I watched it twice. Girl. Actually. <laughs> I've only it seen it once, so but I have to see it again. I have to see it again. Because I finished it like it was like Saturday night 
And I was like, I'm just going to rewatch it right now. So I was like, it is 1 a.m. <laughs> it like, made me so happy. Oh, fine. It made me very happy because it's, it's just what I need. It was silly. I love oh my that, God, that humor. Perfect. I love that show. John and Titus Hamm can sing up. to me all day long. Oh, John God. Hamm is the best. So good. Come on, Titus. Oh my God! It made me. So I love how happy. they shame exactly you when you pick it. Fake. Okay, so guys, if you haven't seen it, go see it. And it's a choose your own adventure. And if you yeah. if you choose poorly for Kimmy, they shame you. They're like, really? <laughs> wow. Okay, so you know Kimmy would never do that, but okay. I'm <laughs> like, hmm. Sorry. Oh God! I picked Thank the uh, I picked the one where Titus doesn't know the song and <laughs> me too. It's just me like me a and I was like, oh yeah, that does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> and they all perished. And then I just That's I love I love Lillian. Oh my God! Like oh my God, her delivery is so weird and like. Yeah, I just love her delivery. It's just, she's just, yeah, I just love her. So, yeah, if you guys want something silly and stupid, go and look at the Kimmy Schmidt. I might have to watch it sometime this week just to make myself feel better. Choose. And make There's so many choices. versions of it. It's very exciting. It's so silly. So, um, so we'll get started. Now, I'm first this week, and my notorious woman this week is a two-parter. Um, okay. And I've been meaning to do her for a while, but she's so great. There's a lot, so I was like, I got to break her up into two. So my uh, notorious woman is, uh, um, this week, is Ida B. Wells. Girl, we she has been on my list for right? solidly two years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, she's so yeah, great. Thank you for I bringing love her. her. But she's just like. And she so deserves a three-parter. But, you know, we have she a She really does. I think that's what, like, I, I sort of started and then I got overwhelmed. And then yeah. I stopped. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and she's so great. She's one of my heroes. And so, anyway, so let's get started. So Ida B. Wells. So Ida B. Wells was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi, on July 16, 1862. Now, she was the first child of James Wells and Elizabeth Lizzie Warrington. Um, now, her father, so, so for uh, some context, uh, her father uh, was a, a mixed-race man. Uh, back then they said mulatto, but I hate that word. Uh, but he was a mixed-race yes, mixed man. So basically what that means is that if you were mixed-race in that time, your father was white and your mother was a slave. Um, occasionally yeah. we would have it where, uh, like I think with one of our notorious women, her father was actually, um, I think, uh, he was a free man, but he was like a, a recent immigrant, he was like an Irishman or something, but this was in the north, um, of that particular woman. And, and so, uh, but usually, especially if you're in the south, um, during this period, if you're mixed race, that's yeah. what that means. That means that your mother was, uh, raped. Um, mm. they didn't call it that then yeah. because, Black women were considered property, so, but, um, so, yeah. But that's so what it that's, is. Like, it, the context, I think, for history's sake is really important in order to, like, move forward to see where people were in the past. The reality is that generations of, upon generations of women were just raped 
and they didn't even call it that, which yeah. I think is like important. And it was to institutionalized. Know. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, they would actually um, gang rape new uh, slave women in order to break them in, quote unquote. So yeah. it was institutionalized. That's really right? bad. There's yeah. not two sides of that story, just to be clear. There, yeah. yeah, just one. Some bad people and some victims who were yeah. innocent. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I have opinions. And so, cool. yeah, so it's just like it, that. So that's a terrible. So I just put that in context. And I and the reason I did this. So so his father. So her grandfather was probably a white man. So her father was a mixed race mm-hmm. guy. Um, now sometimes if the father, the white father, wasn't a complete monster and had some semblance mm-hmm. of human kindness or human decency, yeah. um, mm-hmm. he would uh, try and give some kind of special treatment to his offspring. Whether that Now, they wouldn't free him now, Thomas Jefferson. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they wouldn't go so far as to do that. But they would uh, – so one of the ways they would do this is that they would – get that particular slave who was also their offspring an apprenticeship so they could become a skilled laborer. Yeah, um, I think we've talked about this before. It's like yeah, better and, than nothing. Yeah, oh Thank no. You. That's, you got to take what you can get even in today's yeah, you life. Know. Uh, but like, um, but hmm. unless you think that that's because he's like, oh, he has some special feelings. He may have had some special some feelings. Because uh, maybe the guy looks just like his dad. Who knows? But oh, yeah. um, but also, if you have a skilled slave, then you can rent them out and make more money from them. But I don't right. think that was yeah, the case. Yeah, it's profitable. In, yeah, I don't think that was this case. I actually think he allowed his son to keep uh, all or part of his earnings when he loaned him out. I'm not really oh, going to find documentation for that. But I got that sense that he was able to at least get some money. But more importantly, he got a skill, right? Because, again, people don't right. know that uh, freedom is coming. But, you know, well, I guess 1862 when she was born because uh, the war started in 1861. So, um, yeah, there's hope. But in the South, they were like, we're winning. So, um, so yeah, so yeah. her father, so when he was, so when her father was 18, he was um, apprenticed as a carpenter's apprentice when he was 18, but this is well before Ida was born. But that just gives you some context that her father, after uh, slavery ended, had skills. Now, her mother right. okay. um, was uh, – her mother was not mixed race, but you never know. Her mother's mother could have been mixed race. You just never know. But her mother wasn't as so lucky in her enslavement because she was actually sold away from her family at an early age. Um, oh. but because both of but her mother was known as having cooking skills, great cooking skills, so which is always highly coveted um right. in any society so but her um but after the war, because both of Ida's uh Wells's parents had skills that were marketable, they fared better much better than new freedmen, new free black yeah. people, yeah, they got um, they were very lucky. Yeah, so they actually became very uh, quite prosperous, and they opened up businesses in 1867, uh, 1867, and eventually had eight children total. Wow! So, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, 
so James, her father, had a successful carpentry business. But in addition to that, he became a trustee for a school for newly freed slaves. And because he had these skills and also probably because he was light-skinned, he, you know, he was considered, a, a, you know, a more educated man and he had more prospects and, you know, but so, and also he was a race man, so he really wanted to uplift black people. Um, okay. And so, like many free people who had any kinds of skills, you know, they started schools for new free places to learn how to yeah. read, to get educated, to get a skill, whatever. So he, he became trustee of a school called Shaw College, which uh, became Rust College later on. And he became a member of the Loyal League. In addition to that, uh, like I said, he was considered a race man for his involvement in politics. Now, by all accounts, because her parents, you know, because she was born in 1862 still in bondage, but, you know, by the time the war hit, she probably had no remembrance of it. If she did, it was probably vague memories of it because she was three when yeah. the war ended. Um, yeah. So by all accounts, her early childhood was pretty good. It was full of love and comfort. Um, and she even got her primary education because even though it's called college, it was uh, considered uh, just a school. Um, okay. so a different college has a different connotation than what we have now. So um, yeah. she got her education, um, and she actually uh, enrolled in uh, a liberal, the liberal arts college at Russ College, uh, uh, where her father was one of the trustees. So again, she's, you know, she's her father's a trustee of the college. So you know, I <laughs> comes from upper crust, you know, the black community. So. Um, so all was going well, you know, the business is good, you know, and this is still in a time where black people were very hopeful that they're going to be able to really contribute to American society. They're very excited and, you know, they're, they're re, yeah. uh, reuniting with their family members and just, you know, those who have skills, you know, are, you know, starting their own businesses. It's all good in the hood, right? Uh, but unfortunately, her home life would turn tragic. In September 1878, um, she tragedy struck when both of her parents died during a yellow fever epidemic that also claimed so a pandemic, a oh. yellow fever pandemic, which is very yeah, common back then. They used to have those outbreaks a lot. They used to have, um, yeah, like everyone's complaining yeah. now, but I'm like, we've gone many years without one, so yeah. So basically her parents oh, wow. had about, you know, yeah, they had about, yeah, well, no, she's, uh, so she was 16 at the time, 1878, so. I can't do, I can't do math. <laughs> yeah, no, but her parents had about 13 but, yeah, years no, I can't. as free people, you know, and yeah, they managed to do all this, and, um, and so now oh. she was 16 at the time, just 16. Now, she had been visiting her, uh, one of her grandparents' uh, farms near Holly Springs at the time, so she was spared. But she wasn't in the house, so it didn't spread. Oh. Yeah. But she lost now, one Holly, sibling, but the other seven, the other six. Um, yeah, it says, and I think uh-huh. one may have aged out or gone, uh, because it said that five siblings, but I'm like, no, she would have six siblings left. Seven But siblings some left. might have been older, so that, yeah, they yeah. have not been in the home. Yeah, so she, now she was just 16, which, again, 16 back then is very different than a 16-year-old now. However, yeah, that's right, still yeah. so, so young to lose your parents and your oh, family like yeah. that. And so suddenly, you know. 
Um, now, following the funerals of her parents and brother, friends and relatives decided that the remaining children would, should be separated and sent to various foster homes. Um. But I was like, mm, not on my watch. Nope, nope, nope. So she, uh, to keep her siblings together as a family, she convinced the nearby uh, school administrator that she was actually 18 instead of 16. Oh, wow. Uh, so they would hire her as a teacher in an elementary school in Holly Springs, a black elementary school, of course, in Holly Springs. Yes. Um, her paternal grandmother, Peggy Wells, along with some friends and relatives, stayed with the siblings, so they helped her with child care, um, and they would care for the children during the week while um, Ida was uh, away teaching or, you know, busy teaching. Uh, but then her grandmother okay. died from a stroke. Okay. And then her sister Eugenia died. So, yeah, it's a lot going on. Life was really, really hard back then. So so Ida uh, decided to take up one of her other aunts, uh, her aunt Fanny, uh, who said, why don't you come and live with me and your sisters in Memphis? So that's what she, okay. she decided to do in 1883. So that was about five years after her parents died. So that's just a lot of heartache. So she's about 20. Oh, that's, that makes me lot. feel, you know, like I should stop complaining about my sex. <laughs> yeah. That I have to, like, wipe off my eyes after I come back from going outside. Yeah. It's so but hard. It's so hard. We now have germ theory, and that's helpful. I know, right? Real, real yeah, helpful. No, helpful. Do a little spritz, alcohol spritz. Um, right. So now, yeah, I'm I'm not playing around. But so now, so she goes to Memphis, 1883. So soon after moving to Memphis, she was hired uh, in Woodstock by the Shelby County School System. So she's continuing teaching. And now teaching, okay. again, for black women back then, um, that was basically, even if you were a genius, like the ladies from Hidden Figures, the most you could hope for as a black woman then is to be a teacher. And yeah. being a teacher is a noble profession. Don't get me wrong. But they weren't, just like today, they were not paying teachers what they really were. Mm-mm. Okay. So, and it's limiting um, your your uh, potential. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not, not in terms but of, just, like, hierarchy, but just, like, what you'd be good at. What you'd be good at. Exactly. For example, exactly. I would not be a good teacher for small children. I have learned that in the past few months. <laughs> Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, but I will say, being a teacher for a black woman, then that was considered like, ooh, she's a teacher. School teacher. Like, you know, they would even call you like school teacher. Yeah. You know, it's like Little House on the Prairie, like school teacher. Like, that was a It is true. Thing. They They held yeah. a very important part of society. As they should, because being a teacher is a yeah, noble and wonderful, should. wonderful yeah. profession. And they, yeah, they should make more than they do. But um, Yeah, like by a lot. Millions of yeah. dollars. Yeah. They definitely should be making more in Wall Street, guys, but there you have it. Um, mm-hmm. So I tell them to say that, you know, she is considered, she's rare in the sense that she's a black woman, but she comes, quote, unquote, from a good family She's educated. She's a teacher. She's considered, like, upper crust black person. Like, it's kind of like those, um, you know, you hear about those women who, like, um, 
I don't know, Emily Dickinson or something like that. Like they have, they come from a good family, but they may not have a lot of money. You know, oh my god, that kind of thing. Like every you know? novel I love is about those families. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like Lizzie Bennett. It's like the Bennett, right? They right. Have a lot of money, but they have a good reputation. That kind of thing, right? Because they're like pride and prestige, prestige, but not a dollar to show for it. You know. Yes. But she's the black version of that, in a sense. So uh, now, so when she went, so she went to Memphis and she started uh, working as a teacher in the Shelby County School System. Um, and during the summer, her summer vacation, she actually she actually attended summer sessions at Fisk University, another historically oh. black college in Nashville. You know, they're always like black people should pull up themselves. This is when they started all the mm-hmm. black colleges because they wouldn't let black right. Up another so they were pulling up by their bootstraps. Yeah, cool. They would occasionally let one black person or one Asian person, but by and large, these, you know, or one woman yeah. occasionally, one white woman, maybe, you know, um, but by and large, they did not allow, it, the colleges yeah. for white, well-off <laughs> men. I mean, it was a, a very small percentage of what the world was made up of. Yeah. Uh, that so were allowed in her education. Yeah. So she attended during her summer vacations Fisk University, um, and she also attended L- Limon Owen College, another historically black college in Memphis. So she would go to Nashville and go to Fisk, and then go to Limon Owen um, in Memphis. Um, she she had, just kept she was in educating herself. My God. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so she and keep in mind she was born. 1862. So she was born in slavery, and this is what that she is just incredible. Like, mm-hmm. like that's incredible yeah. because like yep. it's you you kind of need most people who go to college like who who want something above and beyond. There's a pre- there's a precedent for it, right? You know what I mean, like. I went to college, sure, but so did my mother. Right. You know, like, there there was the sense of, like, that's normal. She was born into slavery. Yeah. And then you end up getting yourself into more than one college? My God, I'm just very impressed. And you're a woman. You're a woman. I mean, and, you know, and she's a young woman. Yeah. She should be looking for a husband. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you? I have a feeling. I have a feeling that Ida was not looking for a husband because even at that age, she had strong political opinions. And that a girl. Uh, she was a suffragist, of course. Uh, so she mm-hmm. had strong political opinions. And um, people were like, oh, and she has uh, an opinion on women's rights. Like, give them to us. So, I love um, her so much. To illustrate this, at age 24, she wrote, quote, I will not begin at this late day by doing what my soul abhors, sugaring men, weak, deceitful creatures with flattery to retain them as escorts or to gratify a revenge, end quote. Oh, my God. She's, She's my, my favorite. She's like, oh, my God. Yes, girl. Mm-hmm. Now, now, on May, remember I was saying that she's considered like a Lizzie Bennett, but a black version of a Lizzie Bennett, right? So, yeah, you know, yeah. strong intellect, lots of offer, but not a lot of money necessarily, but she's a great catch for any man willing to pass the cojones, right? So, but on mm-hmm. May right, exactly. 4th, 1884, so this is about a year after uh, she had moved to Memphis, 
a train. She got into it with a train conductor. <laughs> so she okay. was free, 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 Rosa Parks. She got into it a train conductor with the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad ordered Ida to give up her seat in the first-class ladies' car and move to the smoking car, which was already crowded with other passengers. So she purchased she had purchased her first-class ladies' car. I'm sure there's a reason why mm-hmm. they have the ladies separated. Uh-huh. You know? There's probably a very, very um, good reason. I'm sure. And then it's a smoking car. Who wants to go in a smoking car? Nobody. Nobody wants to do that. You're a smoker. Terrible. Right. Because the smoking car is for people who are smoking. So, um, and it was already crowded. So the previous year, the Supreme Court had ruled against the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1875. So they've had Civil Rights Act since 1875, which has banned mm-hmm. racial discrimination and public accommodation. Now, that is part of wow. legislature, the, the laws that they were, that, you know, a lot of the freed men were, you know, who were running for public office, you know, were able. And then, of course, you know, abolitionists and, you know, civil rights advocates uh, who are also white people are like, we need to start living up to the, you know, the things that say in the Constitution, right? So there was a civil yes. rights act of 1875, which banned racial discrimination and public accommodations. Now, all of this went to hell when they instituted yeah, Jim did. Crow in 1900. But this was 25 just, years before Jim Crow. Okay? It just makes me so mad. Like, the Jim Crow laws is just – I don't want to say it's like Trump winning because that's politicizing no, is. this podcast. It is. But it that's is. Well, yeah. <laughs> but in that, if he, if he had won and he became I mean, president for 50 years. So. Yeah. So here's hoping. Um, but but right, but that's what it is. We were progressing, progressing. It made sense if you look back at the history, and I've said this before, and I think all the time on this podcast, like it wasn't a natural reaction to slavery. In fact, the the end of slavery brought about a lot of wonderful things for Black people yeah. until we just got so terrified of darker skin. I mean, my God, people, grow a pair. Anyways. How do I feel? Well, you know, so they so they they passed this law, but then the Supreme Court had ruled against it the previous year, mm. uh, in 1870, um, actually in 1883, but it had been passed in 1875. So now this verdict supported railroad companies that chose to racial to racially segregate their passengers. So when she refused yeah. to give up her seat, the conductor and two men, so three fucking men, and I think he wasn't tiny. He's like five two. Three fucking men dragged her out of the car. Like, now, really I would like to talk to the bitch who said, get this woman out of what I've decided is my seat. Look, look out, those three men, I have cut off their penises too, please don't get me wrong. But what, what is that, that white woman standing there I don't even, you know, saying, honestly, this is my I'm seat? Not, I'm going to cut yes. my uh, white sister's a, a, a break. I don't even think, you know, I don't know all the details. I could be wrong, but I don't even think there was actually a white woman there. I think he just didn't want her sitting there. Oh, so okay. I so you cut off his dick. Like, That's fine. Yeah. You're right. So because <laughs> he's trying to, to, uh, to, what's the word I'm looking for? To um, be a dick with that. But to uh, push forward his agenda, and I'm mm. going to put her in her place, this tiny little woman 
So three men have to drag her out and humiliate her, right? So she felt so that like does that make you feel more like a man, sir? Is that helpful at all? And keep in mind, she's a proper young lady who's well educated. So yeah. you know, so she's not loud, she's not um, low mm-hmm. class, acid. She's a proper young lady, dressed appropriately. Obviously, she's very well educated. Da da da. da. He just wanted to assert his authority. So they drag mm-hmm. her off the part. And she's his familiar. penis so, is so small, Levetta. Just a tiny little dick. So this poor is tiny this. penis boy. Okay, go on. And and. This injustice and humiliation led her to pick up her pen and write. Ah, ah, ah. they had just let her sit there. Mm, All the quotes about the power of the pen versus the power of the sword. Go on. That's right. (laughs) So it was at this point that she garnered her first, but definitely not her last, sense of publicity in Memphis when she wrote a newspaper article for The Living Way, a black church weekly, about her treatment on the train. So, like, you know, there are always black, you know, newspapers independently owned because we were saying, you know, we did, we talked about Rosa Parks, like getting the, or, or Reese Taylor actually getting this this out there, like, yeah. you know, out, you know, the stories of what's happening in black America. So a lot of times that's why black people love church. And I think somebody asked me once, I think it might have been you, they were like, why are black people so religious? So it's also a social thing, but it's also a way. Definitely, was, I never asked you that question. Just to never. clarify, I would okay. never ask you that question because I don't think that all black people are religious based on my no, own mean, experience. <laughs> but that's just based on my own experience. Like everybody say they're religious, but they're not really. Um, but but that's mm-hmm. why at least I would say black American and actually black Caribbean people have a strong sense of like, you know, authority. And, and yeah, we know they used to use the Bible to justify slavery and all this other stuff, but um, but one of the reasons it's a social, it's a social um, um, gathering, but also it's a yeah. way to learn about what's going on in the community and to circulate news. So, yeah, um, so she did this. So the Living Way was a, a black church weekly, and she talked about her treatment on the train. Uh, so in Memphis, she hired a, a, a black attorney to sue the railroad, but he was paid off by the railroad. So you know what she did? She hired a white attorney. Okay, girl. <laughs> so I was like, okay, okay, I got you. Wow. You so buy you off like that, huh? How are you going to sleep at night? What? Okay. Good night. Guess what? Yeah. See, well, and they also probably threatened and they're like, just take the money and go. It'll be better for you in your in your yeah. legal So she won the case with the white attorney on December 24, yes. 1984. When the local circuit court granted her a $500 award. But That's a lot of money. The yeah. railroad company, being dicks that they are, appealed they are. all the way to the Tennessee Parker. Supreme Court, which reversed Absolutely. the lower court's ruling in 1887. What dickwad? And so in their ruling... It concluded, quote, we think it is evident that the purpose of the defendant in error was to harass with a view to this suit and that her persistence oh my was God. not in good faith to obtain a comfortable seat for the short ride, end quote. Uh, so basically, she's just a troublemaker. Just fucking racist. Misogynist, yeah. racist assholes. That's all that is. So racist. when 
So when they decided to use Rosa Parks for the bus boycott, they knew exactly mm-hmm. what they were doing. Yeah. Okay? And also, now, keep in mind, Ida's like 24, 25, so she's still a young woman. Rosa was in her 40s. Yeah. So, to add insult to injury, yeah. they ordered that Ida pay court costs. These fuckers. What motherfuckers? But oh, you know my what? God. What? Hell hath no fury. <laughs> because that, so... So this whole this high court decision revealed her. It, it like it just strengthened her conviction uh, for her yeah. to really pursue civil rights and religious and her religious faith, as she said, quote about this whole thing. Quote: I felt so disappointed because I had hoped such great things from my suit for my people. Oh God, is mm. there no justice in this land for us? End quote. Yeah. So she's fired. Yeah. So. She continued to teach elementary school because you got to make a living. And she became mm-hmm. increasingly active as a journalist and a writer. She was offered, actually, an editorial position for the Evening Star in Washington, D.C., and she began writing weekly articles for the Living Way Weekly newspaper under the pen name Lola. Now, under her pen okay. name, she wrote articles attacking uh, racist Jim Crow policies. So they started, but they weren't instituted until mm-hmm. uh, the 1900s. It, actually was solidified in the 1900s but anyway um, yeah but it was and, it was actually starting in the 1880s like yeah 1880s, from what yeah. i remember yeah but it and wasn't it like actually and you know interesting side note jim crow if i if i'm correct if i remember correctly was a character from um um minstrel yeah so jim crow yeah, was a character that white people who were in blackface came up with when they were portraying quote unquote black people, Jim Crow was mm. a character name. So that's where that comes yeah. from. So anyway. So in eighteen eighty nine she became editor and co owner with J. L. Fleming of the Free Speech and Headlights, a black owned newspaper established by the Reverend Taylor Nightingale and based at the Beale Street Baptist Church in Memphis. Oh. Um but when you start speaking truth to power, power starts to kick back. So in 1891, she was actually dismissed from her teaching post at the Memphis Board of Education. Oh, by the Memphis Board of really? Education due to her articles that that criticized conditions in the black schools she witnessed while teaching in the segregated school system in Memphis. But so she's just like, how well, it... how do you expect our kids to learn anything yeah, like... if they're not given – Honestly, yeah. like we all know, like the key, and that's why the schools were terrible. Because, yeah. Hello? Miriam? How you write? Can you hear me? Okay. I am yeah, here. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Sorry, mm-hmm. my earbud just decided to leave my ear. Um, <laughs> running. Um, is, is education. Everyone knows. Right? Yep. People fight for that. That's why a free education in this country we fight for and it's so important and when we see people trying to privatize everything, dangerous because if you have a common ground, right, we give everybody a real chance. But that's not what they were doing. They were fighting to not give everyone a chance. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and also because now, so they fired her and, and like I'm saying, she's well respected in her community. Um, and because she was so well-respected, people listened to her, and that's why they were pissed at her. Um, so ah, yeah. So she, 
she was devastated by the dismissal because obviously she loved teaching, but undaunted. Mm-hmm. And so she concentrated her energies on writing articles for the Living Way and the Free Speech and had like now it's so interesting because I, I remember I remember when I was doing this research I was like if those fools had just if she had just won that case had da 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 they right. would not she would not have concentrated so much on her writing her no journalism. she would have won the case and she yep. would have gone back to teaching yeah she's been a good little negro so you now, know her writing <laughs> now. Through her writing, they fucked with her. Yeah, they did. She was able to begin to shine a light on injustices that black people were experiencing in general. But in 1889, one of those injustices hit home, close to home. In 1889, a black proprietor named, so this is a little, it's not a little, excuse me, a little complicated, but just just bear with me. So in 1889, a friend of hers, uh, a local business owner by the name of Thomas Moss, he had opened uh, a grocery shop called People's Grocery in a South Memphis neighborhood, nicknamed The Curve. So that was the name of the neighborhood. The now, okay. Ida was close to Moss. Yeah, Ida was close to Moss and his family, and having stood as godmother to his first child. So Moss's oh. store did well. So it was doing well, and it competed with a white-owned grocery store across the street owned by a man named William Barrett. So Barrett oh, and Moss, so Moss is her friend. Barrett is the white guy. So on March second, eighteen ninety-two, a young black boy named Armor Harris playing was playing a game of marbles with a young white boy named Cornelius Hurst in front of the People's Groceries. So a little okay. black boy, little white boy, you know, they're kids. They're playing marbles in front of Moss's store, People's the People's Grocery mm-hmm. Store. The so two boys got into a fight, like kids get, you know. And yeah, because that's what kids do. Because that's what boys they do. They do that. So I can vouch for that. As, yeah. So the black boy started winning the fight, and so the father of Cornelius, the the white boy, um, intervened and began to beat the black boy. So, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Two no, boys you can't fighting. do that. Right. Two boys are fighting. Nope. What? One of the parents of one of the boys steps in and starts beating the child. Right? No. What you now. do is you separate the children. You take your child home. You say, that's not how you problem solve. And please don't beat up other people. Walk away. So here's a grown-ass man uh, beating on a Beating child, a child. Right? So in the People's Grocery Store, that's a black-owned grocery store, two employees, William and Calvin, saw, saw what was happening. So they went out to defend the little boy. From this grown ass man attacking him. Yeah, and then you could really hurt this child. Yeah. And so a crowd started forming, uh, forming around this. And so they called it a racially charged mob. But I'm like, no, they were just like, why are you a grown ass man beating on a child? Like, you know. Oh my God. So, yeah. So the following day, I guess hearing about this, so this is the following day on the third, the white store owner, Return the following day to the the black home store across the street with the county sheriff's deputy looking oh for God. William, one of the guys who broke up the fight. Okay. So okay. Calvin, uh, one of the other guys who broke up the fight was like, oh, well, William's not here. Um, so the white store owner left. Um, and people said he was also really frustrated because of the competition, right? Yeah, so I, I think it's all that, about that. 
if I was a black person, I had a choice, especially then, to go, because right now I just go to whatever has what I want or both stores, you know? Like, but, mm-hmm. like, if I were a yeah. black person yeah. then, I would probably go to the black-owned store because I would get treated with respect, right? Right. So, and if you're in a, obviously know, black neighborhood or whatever, like, I don't know, but obviously, no matter why Thomas maybe had better a bread, I don't know. Thomas' store was doing better than Barrett's store. So, uh, Moss's store was doing better than Barrett's store. So, but some people think he used that, this opportunity, because he was also frustrated that he, that Moss's store was doing better than his. Mm-hmm. So, he, um, so he said when he went to the store with the sh- sh- sheriff's deputy and da da da, he was just frustrated and, and the other guy wasn't there. He said, people said, he said, quote, uh, blacks were thieves. So all black people are thieves, and it's like, so oh my God. I'm definitely not coming to your store. And then he attacked McDowell, Calvin, with a pistol. Oh, my God. They probably got into it. Yeah. So <laughs> McDowell wrestled the gun away from him and fired at Barrett because he's defending himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so missing him narrowly. So, so to recap, two little boys are fighting. <laughs> Um, the parent of the white boy comes in and intervenes and starts beating on the black child. Two grown right. black men see this, and they break up the fight, and then a crowd forms around. Like, what are you doing, dude? So then they all leave, but then the store owner, who I'm like, wasn't into it, but maybe he thinks he's got to protect white people, even if they're in the wrong. Mm-hmm. So he comes over, uh, and he's looking for the other guy that broke up the fight with the sheriff's deputy. Um, and then gets into an argument with one of the other guys and pulls a gun out on the guy, and then they get into a fight. And the guy, like, yeah. So the, all of this happened because two kids were being kissed. So, so McDowell, um, so the guy, the black guy, um, who was defending himself and fired on the, the white, uh, store owner was arrested. Uh huh. Of course. That's true. And then released. Yeah. So he was released. Two days later, so this is still not over. Two days later, a group of six white men, including a sheriff's deputy, took electric streetcars to the people's grocery store. So they're not letting this go. Oh, my God. The white men were then, so the black people probably here like, oh, they come in and try and lynch us or take us or whatever. Because lynching's been going on since the end of the Civil War, right? That's when it, like, I mean, yeah, that's when it, so the rise yeah. of the KKK. So the group of white men, and so they came to, I guess, they thought they were going to do something, and they were met with a barrage of bullets from, <laughs> from the oh my God. grocery store. So oh, my God. So the sheriff's deputy, who shouldn't have been there, was wounded as well as the civilian, Bob Harold. So, okay. so they're like, the black is taking over. And it's like, you guys have, like, made this worse. It's two little kids fighting. It should yeah, have been. It, when the kids are it fighting, should have been nothing. beat the kids, then the two guys, it should, it should have been squashed then. Because he should have been like, okay, I should have been beating the child. I, I lost my temper. Because sometimes kids make you lose your temper. Whatever, right? Mm-hmm. No, this is. Right, way. yeah. And that's why they think it was another, an underlining way to take down, an opportunity to take down the black business, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so after they come there and then the black people are like, oh, no, you won't, not today. So then all of a sudden, hundreds of white men were deputized almost immediately. Oh, my God. 
and put down what was perceived by the local Memphis newspaper commercial. So they said they're going to get deputized because there's an armed rebellion of black men. So you come out of town and we defend ourselves. So we're armed militia, a rebellion all of a sudden. I don't know what we're rebelling against because we're free now, right? So Yeah. So Thomas Moss, a postman, in addition to being the owner of the People's Grocery, so this is a black man, was named as a conspirator along with McDowell. Oh, my God. McDowell and Stewart were taking up for the black kids. The three men were arrested and jailed pending trial. So you think it's over, right? Nope. Mm. Around 2.30 a.m. on the morning of March 9th, 75 white men wearing black masks, Took Moss, McDowell, and Stewart, 75, from their jail cells, the Shelby County Jail, to the Chesapeake and Ohio Rail Yard, one mile north of the city, and shot them dead. Okay? Oh, my God. The, the Memphis Appeal Avalanche reported that just before he was killed, Moss said to the mob, quote, tell my people to go west. There is no justice here. End quote. Okay? So after their murders, um, after the murder of her friends, Ida B. Wells wrote in Free Speech and Headlight, urging black people to leave Memphis altogether. Quote, there is, yeah. therefore, she, so she said, quote, there is, therefore, only one thing left to do. Save our money and leave a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons, end quote. So this whole event, tragic as it was, it led to Ida B. Wells uh, to what would become her legacy and greatest gift to equality and justice in America. Her tireless and comprehensive investigations of lynchings using investigative journalist techniques she began to interview people associated. So she's fired up. She's on a mission. So yeah. she began because lynching is a uh, lynching is also another word for hanging, but also when they just take black people out of the the jail because they actually shot these guys. So they didn't technically hang yeah. them. Yeah, considered a but lynching. So it's all what I've never, that. what I cannot comprehend is that I've never been able to love to be enlightened. It is illegal to murder in this country, but for some reason, lynchings by either known people or, like, known groups like the KKK go on, um, what am I unpunished. saying? Unpunished. How? What? Yeah, because How? the people in charge look the other way. Right, because so, this is something that I have argued teacher after teacher when I was in high school and college. You know, they said, well, it's 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 illegal to stop groups from meeting or whatever. It's the freedom of speech. Like, because I remember being like, the KKK is a hate group, so it should be put down. It shouldn't be legal. We shouldn't be allowed to have it. And it was like, no, 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 this is America, freedom, freedom, freedom. But I'm like, wait, 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 you're a group that openly murders. And that's cool, cool. And they were yeah, like, they would say mm. that they're just a social organization. That's what they would say. Right. No, it's, exactly. what they're saying is like we all know what it is, but it's people who, um, 
continue to look the other way or may have some sympathy. I guess like you call it what it is. Like it, exactly. Like well, it isn't know, legal. It's not actually okay. Most Americans would like to believe that races are a small percentage of the country and are stupid, ignorant knuckleheads. And that is not the case. Because no. it's not just about what, you know, um, one group of people. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, right? Like, it's not just the Nazis, mm. it's the other German citizens and Polish citizens, mm-hmm. and, you know, who are not Jewish saying, well, yeah, we don't really like the Jews either. So you can have our Jews. Like, or, like well, it's deal. not that big of a deal. Um, yeah, I'm sure they're they, not going to, like, murder them. Murder them. You know, but like. put them in camp. Like, take all their possessions and put them in work yeah, camp. Yeah, that's like, fine. Even if you think it's just a work camp, like, how are you okay with that? Like, like, like how yeah, are you, like, I mean, you know what I mean? And that is how 6 million Jewish people and 10 million people can get killed. 11 million. Because, yeah. Or, oh, I mean, 11, I don't even know. It's like, 11. Um, I mean, 11 million No, people. I'm so sorry. I think it's 13 million. Because I, when, I, when I talk about it, people, I'm like, I've said to people, like, it was 6 million Jews, God awful, horrible, a huge percentage of Jews, but also 7 million other people. Like, so people who oh think it's Lord. a Jewish issue, it's not. It's like an everybody it's issue. It's just like, this is like racism. Like, look, I promise you, no matter how lily white you may be, if we encourage a society of racial injustice, you will be screwed too. Not as severely. Not as severely. <laughs> you are lucky, but you well, will live in a well, world. Like the, well, Mary, you will be if you think, if you call yourself a Christian nation, right? So you consider yourself yeah. a Christian. That's why John Brown, I actually have to look and see if he has a wife, but John Brown is one of the most gangster motherfuckers ever. And John Brown was white. And John Brown was like, we need to kill all the white people with slaves. He's <laughs> like, because he was super religious. And he was like, yeah. our souls will burn in hell. This is I remember wrong. learning about him in high school and it was like, he went a little far. And I was like, I don't know that he went a little far. He's <laughs> not wrong. Because he was super religious and he's just like, if we are really, like, if we really believe what we preach, we're going yeah. to hell. Like, this is yeah. wrong. Like, like How are you wrong? not going like, to hell? We have to if you believe in hell. All of those rules. Let me see. You've broken all of those rules. So you're going to hell. That's what that is. Yeah. But the people that uphold the laws, it's, uh, it's the people who refuse to um, um, uh, hold these people accountable. It's the jury who let them off, who they probably are drinking buddies with, and they like to believe, oh, he's not that bad. And it's like, it's all of this. It's cons- yeah. So, I'm almost And done. it's the people who, part one. who look the other way. Sorry, go on. I just, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, the it's people who like, are quiet. Yeah. Does it really affect me? I think yeah. I'll be fine. Yeah. Fuck so, off. Like, you, it's your society, so she, and that matters to so you, she, too. So she dedicated her life after this, because I can only imagine. That's someone she personally knew. She's godmother to one of the children. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. she was fired up, and she had the power of the pen. So she began to interview people associated with lynchings, including a lynching in Tunica, Mississippi, in 1892, where she concluded that the father of a young white woman had implored a lynch mob to kill a black man she was sleeping with to, quote, 
to save the reputation of his daughter, end quote. So and that's where this whole myth that black men are raising white women is, because it was either the white girl just lied because she was having an affair with somebody else and she got caught, mm-hmm. or she, and so she wanted to, it's like a, 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 a diversion tactic, or she was having a consensual relationship with a black man and got caught. So mm-hmm. now yep. in May of 1892, Ida B. Wells published an editorial refuting what she called the, quote, that old thread there lie that Negro men rape white women. If Southern men are not careful, a conclusion might be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women, end quote. So basically she's like, hmm, women are like, yeah, Tommy, give it to me, Daddy. And you guys are like, you know. So because she started going at them, like she was relentless, her newspaper office was burned to the ground. Wow. So they just burned her. I shouldn't even be surprised with that shit. Yeah. And so she fled uh, for her life, and she fled Memphis. And she was not yet 30. She was going to turn 30 in a couple months. So she had done all of this and not yet 30. And so I'm going to end it there. That's part one of Ida B. Wells' story. Like, she's just like, you she's know, already this. just, damn. And, and, and keep in mind, like, the real threat of her being killed and harmed was real. And she's this young, yeah. diminutive woman. And she's like, motherfuckers. So, she's very, very brave. I mean, my God. Yeah. That's part one of Ida B. Wells. So who's your notorious woman this week? Okay. So my notorious woman has had a complicated life and I thought mm-hmm. it was really interesting. Never heard of her before. Um and there I, I got most of this from um oh I forgot what it is, but the New York Times started publishing relatively recently obituaries for mostly the the they say, look, most of our work is for old white men and we know that now. And so we're going to publish obituaries of people who've already died um, that we feel need to be in the spotlight. Oh, um, I think I've heard about this uh, project. It's yeah. Lovely. It's fantastic. And so I'm kind of going through it. I found uh, Betty Graham through not, – that's not how I discovered her, but I, they actually had an obituary on her as well. Um but um, then I was like, oh, wow. So I kind of went through it, and I, I wanted to find – I was like, well, the New York Times thinks we should talk about her. Um, yeah. And it's about it's about Africa and independence. And so a lot of things I know nothing about. So let's just reiterate, hashtag not historians. Um, and if you're listening and you know – more about this. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about her than it than than what she did. I'll say what she did, but I will have no context in which in what I'm talking about. Um, her name is Andre Bluen Bluen. So it's French. French. She was born uh, Andre Madeleine Gerbila Gerbia Gerbila. I died. No idea if I'm right. Um, okay. She was born December 16th, 1921, um, 
in the village of Betsu in Ubangi Shari to Josephine Wasimba and Pierre Gubila. Her mother was 14 years old and her father was a 41-year-old Frenchman who worked for an import-export company. So things didn't start off super ideal. Yeah. So probably her mother was raped. Yeah. So if she was born to a 14-year-old, she probably got pregnant as a 13-year-old um, yeah. by a 40-year-old. Makes me want to – oh, are you there? Uh, yeah. Can you yeah. hear me? Oh, yeah, okay. I can hear you. I'm going to add a thing. Can you hear me now? Mm-hmm. Yes, I can. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good. Can you hear me now? Um, okay. So when she was three, she was – I got a lot of this from the obituary, by the way. So if, if the New York Times is listening, yes, I am quoting you. Um, she was deposited in a Roman Catholic orphanage for mixed-race children. So oh. I guess they had a specific orphanage for these things. Uh, oh, wow. So she was taken from – from her mother by her father and his new wife to do this. Oh. So oh. it was common at the time. Again, like, I have learned a lot. And so uh, well, I, I think if the men were, well, the men had all the power, right? So I think if the men were, yeah. you know, um, not just moneyed but connected, had a title, then they could do whatever they want. So, I mean, it sounds awful to me. Yeah, that's obviously, but like it was they had these mixed race orphanages designed to hide the evidence of Europeans' libertine way ways. This is a quote. Mm. Um by libertine ways, we mean rape. Mm. You mean rape, yeah. You know, maybe there's some, you know, consent, but let's be real. Uh and to protect partly white children from living in supposedly primitive African conditions. So, yeah, people are out for Already it. then, um, already then. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so the orphanage was, a sh- it was basically a shit show. It was in Brazzaville, which is the capital of the French Congo, and was defined by neglect and abuse. She didn't see her parents for five years. Now, granted, from what I read, she was taken from her mother. She wasn't Mm. happily given. Uh, She spent her days learning the catechism and doing embroidery work to raise revenue uh, for the order that ran the facility. Um, And now let me just, let me just get, so she's, is she mixed race? She is mixed race, yes. So her father is white, her mother... Is not is I assume black. And you don't know what her mother. Oh, okay, okay. I now she does see her mother again. Okay. I, dude, no, but I think her mom's okay. Like for me, I'm like, oh my god, are you okay? Like Jesus, you're you're raped by a forty year old man. You get pregnant at when your kid's three. You get she's taken away. Um, 
she, I mean, went to bed hungry at night. She, there were mosquitoes. It wasn't, it wasn't clean from what I'm getting. Um, and the quote from the New York Times, the mother superior employed a hippopotamus hide whipped liberally. So she was abused. She was abused. That's, that's abuse. Um, well, not only is your child taken away from you, but your child taken away from you and abused. Ugh. You know, it's like one thing to be like, I'm going to take her. You have no choice, but she'll live a better life. No, that's not even that. And then they abuse her. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, then when she was 15, they tried to, the nuns tried to pressure her into an arranged marriage. She ran away from the orphanage. My guess is they were forcing it. Like, I think it was less of a yeah. tried to pressure and she was about to have no choice. Uh, and she bloodied her feet. She clambered over a wall that was capped with shards of glass. She escaped with two other kids. Um, and then after that, she moved with her mom to Brazzaville, which was the capital, and she worked as a seamstress. So this is, this is how I got that she was able to live with her mother again and be with her mom. Oh, so she ran away uh, from while the she was, orphanage. Yeah, from the orphanage. Um, while she was on a riverboat in the Congo River, she met a Belgian aristocrat named Roger Stewart. So they began a relationship, a, ter- a really horrible relationship. He would hide her in the kitchen. Uh, he was a fucking asshole, basically. Um, like there's a, He would call his servant something like monkey boy. or He was just a bad human. Um, yeah, so she left went home to Brazzaville, but she was three months pregnant at the time. And she gave birth to her daughter, Rita, on her 19th birthday, December 16th, 1940. So she has led 75 lives, and she's just turned 19. Wow. Then she met a local Frenchman named Charles Groot, and they had a son, Rene, on her 21st birthday. Get this, December 16th, 1942. She has a theme. Of December 16th. So when her son, Rene, was two, he fell ill with malaria. But here's a fun fact. In hospitals, they would refuse treatment to people of African ancestry because they're assholes. So if you have African ancestry in Africa... They would not treat you. And so he died. Colonialism is a bitch. Is a, mm-hmm. is a dick and a bitch. Yep. And a motherfucker. Like, any sort of yeah. argument for it, I just, no. Mm. Mm-mm. So. Yeah. I just like, it's so horrible. So she was traumatized by that experience. I mean, yes. Um, yeah. And she decided that her other, her older daughter, Rita, should, would not grow up in colonial Africa. Um, and so she legally married Charles, and then she and her daughter relocated to France in 1946. So Charles stayed in Africa, and she left for two years. Now, there's a little side note. Apparently... When her son was in the hospital but not getting treatment, she burst into the mayor's office to demand an exception. She said, this is this is ridiculous. And the exception, it was refused. She screamed at him, child murderer, 
and she was dragged out. A month later, that her son died. So a quote from her, the death of my son politicized me as nothing else could, which mm-hmm. is funny because we were just talking about Ida B. Wells and a, yeah. a death politicized her. Um, she said she was, quote, um, she was no longer, it was no longer a matter of my own maligned fate, but a system of evil whose tentacles reached into every phase of African life. Yeah. So she returned to Bengui in 1948 to find out that her husband Charles was having an affair. Uh, but not long after that, she met a French engineer, André Blouin, Blouin, B-L-O-U-I-N, Blouin, uh, was one of her husband's contemporaries, and uh, he was on assignment for the French Bureau of Mines. So they fell in love, and she divorced from Charles, and her and Andre were married. Uh, so it's Andre and Andre. Uh, okay. Cute, right? Um, uh, they went on to have two children, a son named Patrick and a daughter named Sylvianne. And I hope uh, I when her husband union. It's it was happier. Yeah. Okay. They don't stay together forever, but it's definitely not the shit show that was her first two. I mean, I can't okay. imagine like. To have come from where she came from, yeah, it's tough. It's it's tough to overcome all of that, and then uh, and and living in the world she was living. But she overcame a whole lot. So he was posted at, uh, to a gold mine in French Guinea, um, and there the independence movement was gaining steam under the leadership of Ahmed Sekou. Touré. So, like all the other French colonies, Guinea was preparing for a referendum in which it could choose to remain part of France or gain immediate independence. So she stood behind Touré and she drove across around the country with members of his party, organizing rallies and delivering speeches calling for independence. In September of 1958, Guinea was the only one of 20 French territories that chose to leave France. Which really? is, um, I mean, I just, it's, I some of Stockholm syndrome a little bit, which I think yeah. our country has in a lot of ways about healthcare, about actually if we voted in a different direction, like your life would genuinely be easier and you would genuinely have more money, but you get yeah. sucked in into the culture. You just, oh, it's fine. We'll just, we just won't get malaria, you know, like. Right, right, um, right, right. So it, you know, it's that's that's the only thing I can think of. Um, so through Touré, she met other activists. Uh, now I'm going to give you names of people I've never heard of before, um, including Prime Minister Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and Felix Houphouët. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. Mwane, I'm wrong. I'm so sorry, but you can Google this. Um, Were you better than me? And, uh, was it, is it French sounding or is it? What, it's uh, French-ish, it? yeah. Oh, okay, Which, yeah. But it's French-like-ish? I don't know, really, because I did take French, so it's really terrible that I'm, like, totally clueless. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, seven years, Lavetta. I should know better. Um, and they would lead Ivory Coast, would lead the Ivory Coast for more than three decades. Um, oh, wow. But... 
It was, in, it was a chance encounter in Guinea's capital, Conakry, that catapulted her to fame. So, she was at a restaurant one evening in January of 1960, and she overheard men at another table speaking Lingala, which is a language she knew from her youth. They were nationalist politicians from the Belgian Congo, and they were in town to make contact with Guinean allies. Through them, she met Antoine Gizenga, who was the leader of Parti Solidaire Africain, which sounds like, like the party of African solidarity. I'm slightly making that up. Please text or email uh, and fix it if you know better than I do, which you probably do. Um, it was one of the largest political parties in the Belgian Congo. So he recruited her to help him campaign for elections that would lead up to independence. Um, it's to, in his 2011 memoir, uh, the name of it is, I'm not going to give you the French name. The English name is My Life and My Struggles. Gazenga recalled being struck that this, quote, mother of three, the oldest of whom was already 20 and the youngest four, still had in her the ardent desire to serve the African cause. I am also in awe of that. I only have two children. Yeah. And I, I can't get <laughs> through one kindergarten lesson with them. I mean, one, Lavetta, it's fine. I'm fine. Just in case you're wondering. Yeah. Um, she, she was the only woman in his circle, and she became the head of the party's women's wing, and she preached feminism, and audiences loved her. She had an inexplicable, like, she wow. just came from such trauma. I can't think of another way of, of seeing it. And she just kept climbing a ladder and looking around for other ways to help her people. Um, wow. She had a great command of local languages, um, but Belgians spread the word that she was a communist traitor infiltrator, and other people called her a witch. Okay, she just wanted. I just feel. I feel like. Yeah, any woman that's like, hey, what? What about something that's fair? Communist? What? Yeah. If communism is like, let's just all treat people fairly. Then maybe I am a communist. But like, yeah, it's not what communism is. So no. Maybe like Google communism before you start calling people communists. Um, or like this is in the '60s, so maybe like. Go to your local, like, encyclopedia and look up communism. You know, there are ways. So, Gizenga's party formed a coalition with Patrice Lumumba? Lumumba. I don't know. I said that wrong. Lumumba. You say that again? Lumumba. Lumumba. That's it. I can't say it. You got that. Good. Sounds right. I can't. Every time I say it, it sounds really wrong. Because <laughs> you want to say Lumumba. But I, I'm pretty I sure Lumumba. Yeah. Okay. You do the you you better than I do. Okay. You do African and Japan. I will do German and some. I don't know, French. man. I can do Nigerian and Ghanaian, maybe, but I don't know about. Okay. <laughs> that word you just said and, sounded good. Or sounded and good. then I mean, when you get into the tribes, so yeah, my my Black American brain is like, huh? What tribe? Yeah. But, yeah. but you and I can both do British. Not well, but we can do it. <laughs> <Damn> colonialism. <laughs> yeah, curse you. That's um, the woman that has a subscription to Breadbox. <laughs> Girl. Oh, God. 
I mean, we we love watching shows about people that would probably hate us if they were in real life. But anyway. I like to think that they would not, but, you know, you never know. No, I agree. I like to think that they'd be like, oh, they're actually quite lovely people. We're so sorry, you know. Or Hercule Poirot, I'd like to think that he would not be that okay. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, I want to watch Poirot. Okay. David Suchet is the best one, anyway. He's the best uh, one, yes, 100%. Yeah. I do like the uh, the Death on the Nile and Evil Under the Sun with the, the Belgian, uh, I mean, the um, what's his name, the plump guy. I've been watching that recently. I do like his Oh, his I haven't. Is it easy good? But, um, All right. Yeah, it, it's like uh, one has Diana Riggs, who I love. Uh, from like mm, the 70s. And actually, funny. Maggie Smith mm-hmm. is in it. She's like a young, young and like. <gasps> oh my uh, god! It's so great. Yeah, it's Evil Under the Sun and um, uh, 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 uh Evil Under the Sun and uh, Death on the Nile. I like his, but David Suchet is like he's like the best Poirot. He's like, so hands down. And he's done all of them. Like, yeah, he's so great. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Anyway, I go ahead. That's okay. Yeah. Um. So she, so Gazanga Party formed a coalition with Patrice Lumumba, Lumumba, sorry, mm-hmm. so sorry, uh, who was Congo's first prime minister after the country achieved independence that June. She became chief of protocol in his government. But by the time she took the position, order has been, had been broken down. So the army had mutinied, the United Nations peacekeepers had been invited in to quell the chaos, and um, he was unable to regain control and appealed to the Soviet Union for help, which set off alarm bells in, guess where, United States. The West was like, no! Oh. Western diplomats and reporters, her presence was proof that Congo was turning communist. She was fiercely oh, no. anti-colonial, um, and she came from Guinea, which was a country with Soviet ties. And remember, America at the time was like, colonialism's okay. That's cool. I mean, you yeah, know. It's like, um, I have a problem with something that says I'm African, I have African blood, so even though I'm in Africa, I can't be treated. I have a problem with that. I think that's I mean, of, like, seriously, this, right, like, if someone turned, look, I would go to the Soviet, I would go to whoever is on the side of treating my child in the country yeah. I live in. You know what I'm saying? Also, too, yeah. lest we forget that the that the Russia and America were allies in World War II getting rid of the Germans. So, like, mm-hmm. who at the time, let's call them Nazis, getting rid of the Nazis. Yeah, let's just call them Nazis. Who at the time were, let's just be clear, were bad, okay? <laughs> so, like, yeah, Nazis they, they went <laughs> to who was going to help a society get treated in a non-cruel way. Calm down, you guys. Stop freaking out about communism. She was not a communist. She was. She described herself as a socialist who was committed to African nationalism, which makes sense to me. Like, she wasn't... Mm. She wasn't screaming for... She was screaming for fairness, from what I'm gathering... Granted, again, I am now in a lane that is not exactly my own, so if I'm off on things, please feel free. Um, Her critics ignored her skills as a politician-tactician 
and speculated that she must have slept her way to influence because of her boobs. Because um, her boobs. The boobs. I mean, uh, Karen Bauer, who's a professor of French at the University of San Francisco, has written about her, and she said, Bloom was always seen as a courtesan. Here was this beautiful, elegant woman moving in high circles, so she was an easy target. Now, Lumumba was overthrown in September 1960 in a coup blessed by the CIA, and she was expelled from the Congo. So, when Congolese opposition took up arms against the country's military dictator, Joseph Mobutu, 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 I changed his name, by the way, to Mobutu Sese Seko, saying it all wrong, Google it, she acted as their right. spokeswoman, first from Algiers and then went to Brazzaville, where President Ahmed Ben Bella of Algeria sent her on a humanitarian mission to help children orphaned by the rebellion. So, which is wow. badass. Her husband, it said, okay, the Times article phrased it this way. Her husband divorced her in 1973. So... You know, it makes it sound like her husband was like, I'm out, but I'm not going right, to right, right, that right, too much. Right. I don't know what really happened. I don't know that the New York Times knows what really happened. Um, and she moved to Paris, and she became a den mother to African leftists. She opened her rent control department. I love how they mention it's rent control. That's very New York Times of them. Um, <laughs> on the outskirts of the city to opposition figures and revolutionaries who happened to be passing through. She made rice and stew and served whiskey and wine. So I'm guessing it was like a safe home for them. Um, she remained committed to her political beliefs to the end. Now, this is where it gets all complicated. So even as Ture, the first man she backed, remember him, was imprisoned, mm -hmm. uh, even as he imprisoned, exiled, and killed tens of thousands of political opponents, she refused to denounce him. So, it's problematic. Mm. Very, very problematic. And also, it's also, like, usually when people come from very traumatic backgrounds, they're intensely loyal to the yes, people that yes. have helped them, you know. Even or they saw, as a young person, as a vulnerable, yeah. more, we were all more vulnerable as we were younger. Um, yeah. Um as as the ideal and you have and you've had nothing else to latch on to. You latch on to that. So she also was, power she, is corrupt. Like her friend is no longer yeah. her friend. They turned it to somebody it's else. It's not right. Know? Like it's possible he was who he was when she was helping him. And then Could he be. was very corrupt. Like I don't really know. Um and she it says she was devoted to the nationalist heroes she had come to know in the nineteen fifties and sixties. So she, it wasn't that she supported that, but she turned a blind eye when they embraced right. really bad ideas, um, which mm -hmm. is, you know, we, you know, I can't condone yeah. that, but I, I see it. Um, no, we call out people. If they're wrong, we call, them, we call out our ladies, even if they've done something great. Like, we call them oh, out. Oh, yeah, like, exactly. Like, right now, that this, choice in not denouncing that very bad behavior is a bad choice. Like, it just is. Like, yeah. you can love someone and then they can murder lots of people and you can be like, you know what? That's bad. Um, 
But I understand that she had a very traumatized childhood, and that will affect a lot of things. Still, though, it's bad. Um, there was uh, Monique, can't say her last name, wants their last name, look it up. Um, it's got, like, so many letters in it. Uh, was an editor in Paris who was friends with Boulin and said she did not want to know because for her, that was the most wonderful time of her life. Um, so in 1984, she was, uh, she, she had lymphoma. She was sick with it. She went to a symposium on Congo and shocked them all by asking the attendees for a moment of silence in memory of Pierre Moulele, a politician turned insurgent who was tortured to death by Mobutu soldiers. Um, oh, he wow. was a leader of a violent, communist-backed revolution, and many scholars were horrified and walked out of the conference. Um, By then, she was depressed. She had trouble making ends meet. She stopped her cancer treatment, which is sad because lymphoma is one of the more treatable of cancers. Um, And her daughter, Eve, said she had grown despondent over the oppression that continued even after the end of the, of colonialism. She died on April 9th, 1986 at 65. Oh, wow. So that she went a lot years. She really, really did. I mean, she, she's an amazing person. I mean, she's not, she went through a lot. Yeah. She fought hard. She fought hard. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Powerful ladies, man. Powerful ladies. And can you say her name one more time for me? Andre, A-N-D-R-E-E, the little thing above that first E, you know what I'm saying? Bluin, B-L-O-U-I-N. Okay. I would not try and uh, say that again. Mm. (laughs) Repeat that. Don't do that. (laughs) No. Mm -mm. I respect that. All righty, then. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you for that, uh, Miriam. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed this week. Uh, That wraps it up for another episode of Notorious Women Podcast. Guys, remember to tweet at us at NotoriousWMPod, or you can send us a message on Facebook at NotoriousWMPod, or through Instagram, IG, at Mm NotoriousWomenPodcast. Um, and also, if you want to help us out and become a patron of Patreon, um, you can always go to patreon.com slash notoriouswomen, and that is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notoriouswomen. And, guys, we will see you next week. And we wanted to say um, we hope that you guys are hanging in there. We hope that you're staying encouraged. Uh, we hope that you're being safe and sanitized. And, um if you want to feel good, check out the Kimmy Schmidt and Jennifer Hudson's Closet. That's yeah. all we have to keep saying. Right? <laughs> That's a helpful hint for the week. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>